Let's rock and roll. That open fires me up. Does it fire you up? I'm ready for some football. We're going to hop right into it. Tom Lydon. Butch Stearns. We're going to talk about the 1970 NFL season on episode two. So let me set you up to set everybody else up. What's important, what's significant about the 1970 season? Oh, it's the season in my mind, Butch, that really sets the stage for everything. It really does. The first year with all the teams merged together, there was such meticulous detail thought about going into this season and this is where it all started this is where football as we really know it started the 1970 season yeah and i think you're right about that for so many reasons first of all the afl and nfl had come together before this but now this season the divisions were aligned the conferences were aligned and what football is today i think young fans need to understand that this season in 1970 is what really began building the nfl on rivalry Tom, right? Rivalries that were in existence, but new ones that started in 1972. We got two guests lined up for you for episode two of TB25, A History of Football. You can always follow us on our website, tb25.us. That will bounce you over to our Facebook page. Follow Butch and I on Twitter. Very easy Twitter follows. At Butch Stearns. And at Tom Lydon. Just spell our names out and you'll find your way. We're going to welcome Brad Schultz to the show first, and we'll set him up as we get there. He wrote a great book about the 1970 season specifically. We won't always have somebody who wrote a book about the season we're talking about, so you got to take advantage of it when we can. And we're also going to welcome Bill Curry, who was the center on the Baltimore Colts team in 1970 that ultimately won Super Bowl V. We come out of the 69 year where the Kansas City Chiefs not only won Super Bowl IV, but won it incredibly impressively. They were dominant. They really proved that the AFL teams were legit. And through the first four Super Bowls, it was two and two. There was no question among the players that the AFL was real. I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs were the most powerful team in football. Yet the Green Bay Packers were still sort of looming. They were the New York Yankees. They were the Montreal Canadiens. So again, as we come into this 1970 season, it really is sort of Ali Frazier. It really, but it's all coming together. Right? Yeah, and you do have stories of redemption too. So you had to have a balance and you had 10 AFL teams move into this new NFL and 16 NFL teams. So what had to happen? Three teams had to move from mm -hmm. the NFL over to the AFC. Could you imagine what that conference room was like? Right, right, when they were having the conversations about what they were gonna do. We talk about the three teams that moved over, one of those three teams was the Colts, who moved from the NFL to the AFC. The other two teams were the Steelers, who were terrible at the time, and the Browns, who were very good at the time. And they knew that they would at least be able to bring their own rivalry with them to the AFC. So you had what we knew as the divisions for many, many years. You had three divisions in each conference, and they played for division titles, and then there was one wild card in each conference. We will get to that, but I think really the best thing to do at this stage of the game is bring in Brad Schultz, because mm -hmm. he really provides some good context. Enjoyed our conversation with him, and it starts off with a question from me. Why were you drawn to the 1970 season? I mean, I understand how important it was, but in reading your book, I found it fascinating. I thought you were great with the facts, uh, didn't miss anything. You were really detailed, but what drew you to this 1970 season as a book topic? I think for me, uh, I turned nine years old that fall, and I lived in Dallas. We got both newspapers at the time, the uh, Morning News and the Times-Herald, uh, unbelievable cowboy fan as a kid from Texas, and they were very, very good at that time. I think the book was more a way for me to kind of pay tribute to the people that I saw as heroes back when I was a kid. I mean, these guys, to a nine-year-old kid, were larger than life. They were legends. Uh, my favorite player was Lance Retzel. I had uh, number 19 pajamas. I just remember everything about the game to me at that age was bigger. And I wanted to go back and revisit that and in a way kind of pay tribute to that. You, know, you paint a great picture throughout the book about how meticulously the 1970 schedule was crafted by the NFL. And they'll argue that they do the same thing 
each and every year. But there was something so unique about this 70 season. Set the stage as to how the league went about crafting each and every week with a marquee game basically to showcase across the country. Well, you know, you, you make an interesting point about how they come up with the schedule. I'm not sure how the NFL schedules anymore. I, I, I don't know what the formula is. I assume they have one. But back then, you would play, of course, the two division games against teams in your own division, and then typically a set of games against another division in the other conference. So it was very balanced and very fair, and everybody essentially played the same teams. And one of the things the NFL wanted to do in particular during this season was really draw attention to these new rivalries between the AFL and the NFL. So they made sure to schedule the Giants and the Jets and the Cowboys and the Oilers and the Bengals and the Browns. And by doing that, they kind of highlighted these new rivalries that were emerging, made them more visible and created more interest. They also, another one of those games, in fact, was the Rams and Chargers. So there was a lot of interesting things about that year in terms of the schedule. Brad, I want to ask you, you and I are the same age, and while you were growing up rooting for the Cowboys. I grew up in Boston, and I was actually rooting for the Cowboys also. A friend of mine who I played Pop Warner football with, his father was a huge Cowboys fan and gave me a subscription to Cowboys Weekly. So Roger Staubach and Bob Lilly and and all of those guys were like my idols. And then this Boston Patriots team came around. So my question to you is how important was Monday Night Football how, imp- how good a job did they do looking back by taking that franchise and showcasing the stars of the league, the rivals of the league, all of it? How important was that first year of Monday Night Football and what it became? It was absolutely important, and it was a seminal moment, really, in the history of professional football. Now, the NFL had experimented with Monday Night games in the past, and they'd done very well with them, but they were just kind of sporadic, every once in a while type things. This was an unheard of weekly commitment. And just to show you how much uh, concern there was over how popular it would be, nobody really wanted it. ABC, which was the third place network at the time, picked it up uh, rather cheaply, I suppose, given the times. What they did with it, you know, the three-man television booth, and really ruined Arledge's vision of turning it into an event, into show business and entertainment, more than just a game was really important because having a prime time slot it was important that the game be more than just a game and Arledge understood that and it was really the first really the first major sense we had of presenting uh, an NFL game or a professional sports game more like entertainment than for just the game itself So for a lot of reasons, it was absolutely essential. And it also demonstrated the incredible demand uh, for NFL programming and the growth that the league was undergoing. It's not necessarily that more people wanted to watch football. It was a reflection of, hey, we're finally meeting the demand that already existed. And, and that was important from that standpoint. You know, you think about how the league is scheduled now, and they're always very smart about putting the defending Super Bowl champion on that opening game, right. which now is a Thursday night game. Week 1, 1970, was Vikings-Chiefs, which just eight months later is a rematch of the previous Super Bowl where the Chiefs had beaten the Vikings. So they were smart in how they scheduled this the entire year. But, Brad, as you look back at the 1970 season, what were some of the most successful things in your mind that the league did to get this ball rolling in the right direction with all these teams on the same page? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think part of it was um, the modernization of the game. Uh, and that was reflected a lot, and you saw a lot of teams switching from grass fields to uh, artificial surface, which at the time was either polyturf or astroturf. It, it was very much a transitional period where the game went from its kind of pastoral neighborhood feel where anybody could walk up and buy a ticket to the league as we understand it today, which is a league based on profit and a league based on, on modern stadiums and modern playing surfaces and, and that kind of thing. So it was, it was kind of a transitional period where the game started to evolve into the game we know, as, uh, know of today, 
The merger is what pushed that and drove that. Pete Rosell had a lot to do with that, turning it more into a business than a pastime. And, and I think of all the things that come out of 1970, that's the thing that kind of jumps out at me, is that uh, kind of the business corporate aspect. We see the league starting to develop what it has grown into today. And that's why the book is called The NFL Year One. It's really the first year of the modern NFL as we understand it. We're talking with Dr. Brad Schultz. The NFL Year One, the 1970 season, and the dawn of modern football is the title of the book. In your book, Brad, you know, you tell some individual stories, and you tell the story of George Blanda. And I like how you tell that at that time, you know, George Blanda had a year in 1970 where he won consecutive games in the last minute. But besides being the fact that he was a multi-talented kicker, quarterback type of guy, he was also giving middle-aged men in America a lot of hope at that time, wasn't he? It, it was fascinating to think about uh, the folk hero he became. Uh, five weeks in a row, he either threw the winning touchdown pass, kicked the winning field goal, or kicked the tying field goal. And here was a 43-year-old guy uh, who just really kind of caught the attention of all of middle America, all of uh, aging America. And he became really a folk hero to the, the guys in their 40s and older who looked at him and thought, you know, hey, if he can do it, uh, that gives hope to the rest of it as well. So it was one of those great stories that happened during the year. What's really interesting is he went on and played for another five years. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't retire until he was 48. Just an amazing physical specimen. One of my favorite pictures in all of NFL history is a picture that exists that really just made the rounds again because Ken Stabler most recently went into the Hall of Fame. It's a picture of Blanda, LaMonica, and Stabler all on the same sideline. Just three guys who are iconic in their own right. Uh, just a, a really interesting team. Brad, I want to get your thoughts on the relationship between the Colts and the Dolphins and Rosenblum and Shula, because that was an acrimonious parting where Don left the Colts after a subpar year in 69. He took over for the Dolphins and stayed there until the day he retired. Based on some of the stories you were told while getting some research done for the book, what kind of blood? Was it bad blood between the teams, the Dolphins and the Colts? Well, I believe you, you mentioned that you're going to have Bill Curry on in just a bit. And I love a comment he made uh, during one of the America's Game episodes where he said they were just three intractable egos. And they were hard-headed guys. And if all of them were alive, they, they would not apologize. Uh, they were just that kind of guys. Uh, Rosenblum and Shula and Joe Robbie uh, were very successful individuals, but also very hard-headed and, and in many ways very ego-driven. And there was a lot of acrimony there. Rosenblum felt that Robbie and the Dolphins had stolen Shula away from him. And it's not so much that Rosenblum wanted to keep Shula. I think he was looking to get rid of him anyway. He just got mad because somebody took something that he felt belonged to him. So that caused the bad blood, and that was another one of those games, actually two games during the 1970 season that were circled on the calendar, the Dolphins and the Colts, when they played each other, and they kind of, I think, called it the Ro Robbie Rosenblum Bowl. There was a lot of, lot of anger on both sides, and they each ended up winning one game that year. A fascinating kind of uh, triangle there between those three men and how that all played out. Brad, I want to ask you about how the 1970 season culminated in 71 with the Super Bowl with uh, Jim O'Brien's kick, something that didn't happen again until many, many years later when Adam Vinatieri did it in the Superdome in Super Bowl 36. Looking back on it, what was the significance of that Super Bowl overall and the way it ended? Well, first of all, I think everybody has to admit it was a terrible game. I mean, two running defense-oriented teams, that were very nervous, that made a lot of mistakes. So the 58 minutes that preceded the ending were <laughs> just not that good. Somebody posted that game uh, not too long ago on YouTube, and I encourage people you know, to go look at it. It's still there. And, and, and watch it, and it, it almost puts you to sleep the first 58 minutes because it's nothing but runs up the middle and turnovers and incomplete passes. But the significance of it is the ending. And the idea that here's the biggest game, you know, in the sport on the biggest stage, and this rookie steps up there and kicks the winning field goal, essentially his time runs out. 
that just demonstrated the drama and the power that the league had that the ending could kind of wash over and make us forget you know the first 58 59 minutes that had come before it it was not an exciting game but it was an exciting finish and that's what people remember you know for you it had to be devastating you know here are your heroes they finally get to the super bowl they hadn't been able to get past the packers and now they're finally on the big stage i mean i think the iconic image from that game is bob lilly you know throwing his helmet 50 yards down the field after the game because he was so ticked off but you had to talk to those guys what did they feel they had to use that loss as complete motivation to go back the next year and ultimately beat the dolphins because it was kind of like that in the nfl it was almost like the nba in the 80s where you had to earn your way. You had mm-hmm. to move your way up the ladder, and you saw that with the Cowboys, and then you saw it again with the Dolphins. I mean, what did the Cowboys think of that 70 season? Uh, I, I think most of them would agree uh, that, you know, the two Green Bay losses, the two losses to the Browns in the playoffs, this was the worst one. This was absolutely the worst one, because they were better than the Colts. Now, Bill Curry may disagree, and he'll probably tell you something different, but the Cowboys were better, and should have won that game, and that's what made it so hard and so difficult because here for the fifth year in a row they blow it they let it get away but you know i think they also realized what they took away from that was that i think they were better and to a man they realized that hey we can come back and we can do it again unlike maybe after the packers games or the browns games they walked away from this more disappointed but also more determined knowing that they could have won the game and please please don't make me recall those feelings as a nine-year-old kid at the end of that game it was horrible it was terrible well that's all right they picked you up the next year when you were 10 so that's all good Fred final question final question for me is this I mean you have you are a true football historian not only as a fan growing up but you you know your professor you've written books you were an announcer for the Houston Oilers correct so do you have one in all your years favorite football story that you look back on that you know kind of signifies why you love football so much i do remember that same time period when i was a kid lance allworth got traded from the chargers to the cowboys and he actually bought a house in our neighborhood and you, <laughs> you just could not believe the reaction of all our friends and the, and the kids that lived in the neighborhood it's like oh my god lance allworth lance allworth <laughs> and uh bob Lilly went to our church and it was just like these guys were just like I said, larger than life. And to me, that was the attraction. That was to, to have these heroes that you could look up to. And yeah, they didn't. When you got older, see, when you get older, you learn the things about them. That <laughs> you kind of look behind the curtain and you see that they're real human beings and they had problems and issues and all that. But as a kid, that ability to connect and that ability to have these kind of heroes is really what pulls you into the game, and it's what should get passed on from generation to generation and from father to son. Well, Brad, congrats to you. You fit in perfectly with this episode, because as we go through the history of the NFL year by year, there isn't going to be somebody who wrote a book about each and every one of those years. So when I had already read your book and I knew that you had the information about 1970 on the tip of your tongue, I knew you'd be the perfect guest. So thank you very much. Another reminder to those listening, that's Brad Schultz. He wrote the book, The NFL Year One, the 1970 season and the dawn of modern football. It's a really great history lesson. If you're a football fan and you like listening to us, you should go check out the book. And Brad, yeah, Brad you so couldn't much. have written a book about 71, 72, 73, 74. <laughs> Guys, I'm telling you, the next project, I'm already working on it, is uh, about 1972, and I'm calling it Immaculate Saturday, the greatest day in NFL history. uh, First game of the doubleheader, the Immaculate Reception. The second game of the doubleheader, the Cowboys rally to beat the 49ers. Staubach throws two touchdowns in the last two minutes. Be looking for it. That's that's the next thing coming out. When's it coming out? Oh, as soon as I can get it finished. I'm supposed to go talk to Ron Sellers and, and uh, sometime appear pretty soon, so that will get the ball rolling. Well, Tom, we're going to have to wait till the book's out till we do the podcast about the season. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. You're going to have to put that go. on the fast I mean, track. you have to wait a little bit. <laughs> Brad, thanks a lot, man. Nice talking to you. Guys, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Good guy. It's pretty clear he knows his stuff. Great guy. And by the way, everybody we talk to on this podcast is great guys that help build the NFL. The thing that keeps sticking with me, Tom, is the rivalries. I said to you that my memories of 
1970 season in particular, but really all of that, were that every single day it was the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday against the Oakland Raiders with Aldi Rogatis and Kurt Gowdy <laughs> doing the game. Well, I'm not far off because every single Sunday it was a rivalry game, and that's what Brad just talked about. What's interesting about the 70 season, I did some research and I looked, you know, Kansas City really started to decline. I mean, they started the season as the champs, and we gave them a lot of credit, but they didn't have a great year. They didn't go to the playoffs here in 1970, and they went to the playoffs again in 71, which we'll ultimately get to. They played the longest game in NFL history against the Dolphins, but their decline was quick. You know, they went down the wayside, and what you see here in 70 is team are teams that are moving up the ladder. You know, the Dallas Cowboys had been to the playoffs and lost in the NFL championship in 66 to Green Bay. They'd been to the playoffs and lost in the championship in 67 to Green Bay. In 68, they lost to Cleveland in what amounted to the semifinals. That game was on the road. In 69, they lose to Cleveland again in the semifinals in a game that they'd finally earned the right to play at home. So the Cowboys were this team of just utter frustration. You know, they'd started in 1960, and by the time we get to 1970, it's like, hello, we got a breakthrough? Well, let's think about this. I think anybody that watched football in the 70s knows that the great teams were the Cowboys, the Steelers, but that's about to come. That wasn't in 1970. What we had in 1970 were the leftovers from the late 60s, and that's no disrespect. And I'm so excited to hear from Bill Curry coming up because he played for the Packers and he played for the Colts. And, of course, Joe Namath came into this equation. And, of course, the Colts and the Jets came into this equation. And that's sort of what culminates the whole 1970 season. A team that was the most dominant team was the Vikings. And when you think about how the Vikings are ultimately remembered, they're a team that had a lot of success but never got it done up to and including the 1997-98 season. Yeah, when they, they were, were so the Buffalo good. Bills long oh, before the Buffalo without Bills. Without a doubt. They went to four Super Bowls and lost. But the Vikings team that had gone to Super Bowl four and lost to the Kansas City Chiefs, they went through the regular season as the top seed in the NFC. They went 12-2. and two. Now, the second-best team in that division was the Detroit Lions. And the Lions actually got the wild card. But you remember the old rule. If you were in the same division, you couldn't play each other right. in the wild card round. Right. So they actually avoided... Detroit. Detroit went and played Dallas in a game that ended 5-0. That's probably the lowest scoring playoff game and probably the most boring in history. But Minnesota has to play San Francisco. And San Francisco was a good team that had the MVP. John Brody was the MVP of the 1970 Brody. year. So what happens? They host San Francisco. And what do the 49ers do? They go to Metropolitan Stadium and they beat the Vikings. So you can imagine that disappointment. But what it set up in the NFC was the first San Francisco, Dallas, NFC Championship game. And how many good ones have we seen between those two guys in the NFC Championship Well, game? again, you're talking about the NFC. And again, let's remind everybody, we're talking specifically about the 1970 season. Brad Schultz's book is called Modern Football, the year one of modern football, right? And so the NFC was about to go on this decade of two decades of really power and dominance. It wasn't the AFL, NFL anymore. It was the NFC, AFC, but the NFC power teams, despite the Steelers and everybody else, really was the Cowboys, the Niners uh, that were about to come up, the, the uh, Minnesota Vikings. There were some great legendary teams in the NFC. But go over to the AFC, and they'll argue that they really dominated the mm -hmm. 70s because you got the Dolphins, you got the Steelers the who Raiders. won so many titles, the Raiders who were up there consistently. But same rule benefited Baltimore because the second best team in the AFC in 1970 was the Miami Dolphins, right. who were enjoying their first year under Don Shula's leadership. So he leads them to 10-4, and four, and they go to the wild card, but they can't play Baltimore. So they go out and play Oakland in the playoffs, and that we've seen a lot of good Oakland and Miami playoff games. But Baltimore gets this Cincinnati team, which is kind of an upstart. So they catch a break, and they cruise through there, and then they end up playing in the championship game, the Oakland Raiders, who beat Miami. So let's talk to Bill Curry. We'll take a break. We'll hear from our sponsors. He'll guide us through his perspective on the 1970 season. From its high-strength, military-grade aluminum alloy body to its high-strength steel frame, the Ford F-150 is a wake-up call for every full-size truck out there. This is a truck like never before, so you can work like never before. The game-changing Ford F-150 with greater towing and payload capacities and best-ever ride, handling, and braking. Every other truck is history. Experience F-150 at your New England Ford dealers. Ford trucks built Ford tough. 
Everybody's got a to-do list. Drop off the dry cleaning, pick up some milk. Here's an idea. Let's add save hundreds of dollars on car insurance to that list. And the good thing is you don't have to drop off or pick up anything. All you have to do is go to geico.com and in 15 minutes, you could be saving 15% or more on car insurance. Extra money in your pocket? It just may be the most rewarding to-do you do today. Our conversation continues about the 1970 season. Tom Lydon, Butch Stearns, about to be joined by Bill Curry. Let's set the resume for Bill Curry. Played at Georgia Tech under Bobby Dodd, drafted by the Green Bay Packers in 65. This guy played in three Super Bowls. How lucky is he? Plays in Super Bowl one, Super Bowl three, and Super Bowl five. So he experienced some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows. Well, one of the exciting things for me, as we're about to hear from him, I think, is that I think he's best known as the head football coach at Alabama. And the legendary coaches at Alabama, Bear Bryant, Gene Stallings, all of them, right? You think of him as the carrying on that legacy. But when you hear from him about his days playing, about how he was sort of unceremoniously dumped by the Green Bay Packers and where it all ended up, I mean, this is a legendary football guy who bleeds pigskin. You set the table. That's exactly where our conversation started with Bill Curry. I was uh, the starting center in Super Bowl One. I. I was injured in that game and uh, did not complete the game. I don't think that had anything to do with what happened next, but what happened next was that I was placed on the expansion list uh, for the new team, which was to be the New Orleans Saints. And I understood that. I was not one of the better players on the Packer team, so that you, you uh, end up being a, a player that's vulnerable to being chosen by the new team. So I was, and immediately uh, the Saints were so excited about me, they traded me to the Baltimore Colts. Um, I was thrilled out of my mind at that. Don Shula called and said he um, was trading for me because of my special teams ability and at Georgia Tech playing for Bobby Dodd we all were required to learn special team skills and so that served me well in this case. Shula was the, the only coach in the league at that time that had a special teams captain and he emphasized special teams more than anybody which was one reason that uh, we didn't lose many games. So I was very thrilled to, um, to go to uh, Baltimore and to become a part of another great team. The Colts had been uh, our biggest rivals when I was with the Packers in 1965 and 66. We won the world title both of those years, uh, and our hardest games were uh, usually with the Baltimore Colts. Uh, we, we played them five times in those two years, we won all five of them, but they were knocked down drag outs. So to move on to the rival, it was a very strange feeling for me. But uh, in both cases, there were just this wonderful bunch of guys, uh, great leadership on the team. Uh, both teams had um, more African-American players than other teams. Uh, both coaches were very uh, progressive and, and thinking when it came to diversity. Neither of them would tolerate racism. Sometimes bragged about their their racism uh, around the league, and <laughs> they could never beat us. And I wondered at the time that these guys going to figure this out. So it was a wonderful not not just a chance to play football, but a chance to be educated by some of the best people in the world. Uh, that's that's how the transition went from Green Bay to Baltimore. Coach, I want to ask you. You mentioned about the rivalry. I want to ask you the importance of rivalries in that particular year and what it's meant to building the NFL into what it was today. How important were the rivalries back then? Were they more important than they are today? I don't know that they were more important. If you watch the Packers and the Bears play, I mean, that's a knockdown drag out. So I don't think there, there may not be as many rivalries now, but the uh, Green Bay-Detroit rivalry was a very big deal, even though Green Bay usually won, that they were still physical, violent, head-knocking rivalries. And with the Colts, it seemed like we were rivals for almost everybody. We were rivals with the Rams because we were in the same division. And the L.A. Rams were really good, and we were, they, the division was called the Coastal Division. So they were big rivals. And then in 1970, the leagues merged, and we, we flipped over and became an AFC uh, team, and rivalries began had had to really kind of start over but the 1970 was an extension of 1969 when we lost to the jets in super bowl three that was the most humiliating and embarrassing thing that had ever happened in the nfl 
and we all feel that way to this day that, that we didn't play well the Jets played better than we did they deserved to win but that should have never happened and we had a lot to make up for so we fought our way back and in 1969, we, we ended up with 8-5-1, which really wasn't good enough, and Don Shula moved on to the Dolphins. Don McCafferty took over, and we were just a very determined football team. We weren't very good. We had a lot of holes in our team in terms of talent and people that had left, but somehow we scratched and fought and fought our way into the playoffs and managed to win the whole thing. Tell me a little bit, Coach, about the transition to the AFC and what your initial reaction to that was because it was you, the Steelers, and the Browns, and you leave the traditional NFL, and now you're lumped in with all of these outliers that you had been going up against for the last few years. And, you know, the NFL had lost the last two Super Bowls. So what, how did you feel going over to the AFC? Oh, I don't think anybody thought much about it because by this time it was clear that the leagues were fully merged. And as you indicate, the Kansas City Chiefs had made it clear that uh, not only were they ever bit as good as the NFL, but uh, were probably the class of both leagues, the way they handled the Vikings in Super Bowl Four. So uh, there wasn't much to think about. It's just buckle it up and get ready to prove ourselves, thinking uh, that now everybody in the league is going to see a big target on our chest. And I think they did. I think they all set out to um, to whip us uh, with maybe our extra little extra concentration uh, because we were the arrogant NFL coming over into their league. But once we started the season, once you lined up and, and uh, Houston Antoine gave you a head slap, you weren't thinking about the leagues merging. You were thinking about surviving. Uh, one of the other things that happened in 1970 was the birth of Monday Night Football. This was the first time that you were playing football in prime time on ABC, and you were thrown right into the mix that second week. They put you up against the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, and they cleaned your clock. So as we start to get into this 1970 season and what your team went through to ultimately win the Super Bowl in January, when you faced the Chiefs at primetime, there was a lot going on. Can you describe what that night was like for you? Yeah, it was a lot like um, Little Bighorn. I mean, we got murdered. I mean, we were whipped every way you can get whipped. And I was I was a part of a, an offensive line that had enormous pride and uh, cohesiveness. We had played together a long time. And uh, we lined up against uh, Buck Buchanan and Jerry Mays and Curly Culp and the rest of those guys, Willie Lanier, and we could not, I mean, they crushed us. They stacked our quarterbacks 10 times. We couldn't stop them. We couldn't move the ball. It was utterly embarrassing. And uh, we had a very long team meeting, uh, and some things were said in that team meeting that nobody ever forgot that were very, <laughs> how shall I say, they weren't nice uh, about what was going to happen if somebody didn't do their part, and we were all dead serious about it. Our head coach, Don McCafferty, who was in his first year as head coach, fired our line coach and hired a guy a guy with thick glasses, with spectacles. He had been a legendary high school coach, and he was, at the time, he was taking off film for the Baltimore Colts, and he was unceremoniously shoved into the offensive line job. His name was George Young, and he became a legendary figure in the NFL. He was a great line coach from day one, and I think George had about as much to do with our coming together and winning the uh, most of the rest of our games and winning the Super Bowl. Uh, George Young had an awful lot to do with that. You know, Tom, we're sitting there listening to Bill Curry talk about being embarrassed on the second Monday night football game ever. It reminds me what sports really is all about, the passion, the emotion, and what you take. You took that Super Bowl three loss, which I'm still sure sticks in your craw and all your teammates today losing to Joe Namath and the Jets, and you took that Monday night game, and you ended up, with a championship beyond that. And how many times do we see teams now in their most embarrassing moments get raked over the coals in social media and by fans, but you really have to dig deep and you really find out the character of a team in those moments, don't you? You find out what everybody in the locker room is made of. It's one of the best things. It may be the best thing about football. It would be close between the brotherhood and guys loving each other who may hate each other's guts off the field. Um, but you come together on the field and you don't let anything come between you. And you want to know what the great teams have. The teams that come back from the embarrassments 
like the ones that we experienced. Number one, everybody takes responsibility. And number two, nobody is going to let the other guy down. Nobody is going to let the other guy down. So it doesn't matter if you're covering a kick or blocking for a field goal. Whatever you're doing, you do it with all your heart. It becomes larger than life in your mind and in your heart. And that's what great teams have. It's not more talent. We were not more talented that year. We weren't nearly as good as the 68 team. We weren't nearly as good as Kansas City. We weren't as good as Dallas, but we won the Super Bowl because we would not let each other down. As we talked with Brad Schultz, Butch, about how the 1970 schedule was crafted, there was such a focus on trying to get rivalry games, at least one each and every week. And as you look at the Colts, they were involved in so many of those games. I go to October 18th, and you go to Shea Stadium to face the Jets, and you can't tell me, Coach, that back in April of 1970, you didn't have October 18th circled. What was the <laughs> what were the emotions like going back to Shea Stadium and trying to play the Jets that day? Oh, we still got it circled. <laughs> I mean, we had to win. That one ended up 29-22, uh, but it really wasn't as close as that. As I look at here, you were pretty much in control of that game. They scored a couple late garbage touchdowns. So it seemed to me that the Colts were definitely focused on getting out to a fast start right. and winning that game. Oh, it was a big deal to us, but that was just for our locker room. You, you you can go back and read the remarks. You didn't hear us saying we're going to do this and we're going. We knew better than that. You don't do that in the NFL. You don't talk about we're going to get even. We're going to kill these guys. And you, in the locker room, we talked about we we've, we've got some making up to do. We got embarrassed, and we owe these guys not just one. We owe, we owe it to them to beat them every time we play them, and we did the next four times that we played them. Coach, you played with Johnny Unitas. What made him so special? Everything. His uh, utter obsession with precision and the work ethic. My first week with the Baltimore Colts, I was leaving Shula's two days. Got five hours in the heat with pads, both practices. It was a death march. I mean, Shula's training camps were the toughest training camps I ever endured. And I'm dragging myself up to the showers, and I take a shower, and you're still sweating. There was no air conditioning, and I look back down the field, and it's almost dark, and there are two guys that are still down there. And it was John Unitas and Raymond Berry. And Unitas was the most valuable player in the NFL again that year, 1967. And it wasn't because he had superior talent. You know, as I look at your schedule here going down 1970, another game that jumps out to me is the first time you played the Dolphins. And you pointed out earlier, Don Shula had left your team to go be the head coach of the Dolphins, and that wasn't the smoothest of transitions. And you killed them. You beat them 35 nothing. Was there any anger directed towards Don Shula in the manner in which he left the Colts? Heck no. We love Shula. I owe him my career. He brought me to Baltimore and gave me one chance after another um, we did not have special gritted teeth or special angst. Or we didn't care a thing about running up points on anybody, least of all the Dolphins and Coach Shula. Uh, Carol Rosenblum, our owner, and Coach Shula might have had some words. In fact, I think they did. But um, we, we loved Don Shula, most of us, not everybody. Not everybody's going to love a hard-nosed coach like that. But I sure did. I don't remember any negative thinking during the week other than just good preparation. As Tom mentioned, 1970 was the first year of Monday Night Football. I think we all know how instrumental that franchise was in helping to build the NFL into what it is today. When it first came about that first year, how did you as a player look at Monday Night Football? Was it a nuisance? Were you excited about it? Again, once you're an established veteran in the NFL, you don't think about game time or travel, or when you're going to get there, or when you're going to leave, you just think about getting ready for the game, and you go play. If they tell you it's 8 o'clock, fine. If it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, then you do that. By this time, we were, we were accustomed to juggling schedules and things. We, we had to fly to the West Coast a couple of times a year, and we were accustomed to time changes and accustomed to trying to get ready no matter what. And so I don't remember thinking a thing about what is it, Monday night? I, we didn't care who the broadcasters were. Right. We, didn't, we just wanted to win. Did, we, did we you ever very much wanted to win. Did you ever think about that it was the only game in town and that other players were watching you? No, because other players are going to watch you anyhow. <laughs> They're going to watch you <laughs> from, no matter when you play. Uh, I, we didn't 
I don't remember ever discussing it. Okay. All right, well, let's fast forward a little bit to the postseason because Butch asked you about Johnny Unitas, and I, as I looked at the recap of the Colts' run to the Super Bowl that year, uh, Johnny Unitas really stood out. And, you know, you also – we haven't mentioned Earl Morrill yet. Right. It's, it's a very unique situation where you had two incredibly talented quarterbacks, and McCafferty was balancing both of those guys, and Unitas kind of came to the fore uh, throughout the playoffs. And we'll get to the Super Bowl where Morrill relieved him, which was kind of the opposite of what we saw two years prior in Super Bowl three. But take us through – the playoffs. You beat the Bengals, you beat the Raiders, and then we'll stop before you get to the Super Bowl and we'll set the stage there. But your run to Super Bowl five, your games against the Bengals and the Raiders, what stands out to you? Well, the Bengals were in their very first playoff game, and they were a new franchise, and they had really good players. Uh, Mike Reed played on my nose. He's one of the best nose tackles I ever played against, and um, he was an education and a challenge for me that day, and we ended up being uh, good friends because we developed such mutual respect. But we were warming up, and uh, Bob Trumpy, who at the time was uh, one of the better tight ends in the league, came jogging by me, and we were out there on our field at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, which we called Astro Dirt. Um, because the Orioles played on it, and it was just dirt. I mean, that's all it was. And the wind was blowing. It was about 20 degrees, and Trumpy runs by and says to me, you guys ever consider AstroTurf? It was clear that they were not happy with the conditions, and I thought, uh, we're going to handle these guys. <laughs> and we, we did, but it was, it was a very physical, tough game, but I think we're in control most of the way. And then you face the Raiders at home, and the Raiders, of course, had been to a Super Bowl themselves. They were one of the traditional powers of the AFL. They come on the road. I don't know whether that was Blanda that year or LaMonica, who was the quarterback still. What was that game about? Well, LaMonica started, and we went, we got out on them, I think, 17 to nothing. Um, I think that's right. You can check it again. We, we got well ahead of them, and they put Blanda in the game. He was about 77 years old at the time. <laughs> and... He takes our defense apart. He goes down the field twice, and the next thing we know, it's 17-14. So uh, we had to fight for our lives in the fourth quarter. The Raiders were always tough. We, we usually managed to beat them, but they were, they were a very, very uh, tough team. Yeah, that game ended with uh, they had drawn within three. Uh, ultimately, Butch, and then you're going to know the names. Johnny Unitas hooked up with Ray Perkins, oh, yeah. who ended up coaching at Alabama, who I'm sure you probably have some sort of relationship with, Coach Curry. Uh, they they connected for a 68-yard TD pass. So you're back on the big stage. You're back in the Super Bowl. You're playing the Dallas Cowboys. And the Cowboys, for them, it was the first time they'd broken through because, remember, Butch, they had lost to the Packers twice in the NFL championship right. game. So now they're finally on the big stage in the Super Bowl, and they're facing the Colts. Kind of unique because these two teams did have an NFL history associated with both of them. What was it like getting set for that Super Bowl, knowing that as a Packer you'd face the Cowboys? You probably knew those guys pretty well. Well, we were just very excited, and it's probably it's hard to believe that a bunch of veterans as old as we were by then would be like school kids, but we were so jacked about getting back to the Super Bowl. We were so anxious to have a great performance, especially offensively, uh, that we act, that we just exploded. I mean, we had seven turnovers. We did not protect our quarterback. We couldn't run the ball. Their defense stoned us. It, it, it's, if we hadn't won the game, it would have been another major embarrassment. The offense, uh, we've, we've always looked at each other funny. We, we can't figure out how we could have played that poorly in a game of that magnitude. The only thing I can figure is that we were like kids. We just got too jacked up and we were too excited. and We did barely do enough to win the game, but it was only because of our defense. Bill, I want to ask you about the uh, moral unitis sort of uniqueness of it all. I mean, there, to this day, there's a lot of people that believe if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a starting quarterback. But it worked. Two great quarterbacks. They relieved each other. How did it work? Why did it work? It worked because Don McCafferty made it work. He had been the offensive coordinator for many years before becoming the head coach. He knew that whatever we needed to get done, one of the quarterbacks would get it done. And they had somewhat different skill sets, not, not drastically different, but he just had a gift for who ought to be in the game at what time and again the thing that mattered the most is that we believed in him we believed in each one of them and we didn't care who was in the game so we just played we just played our guts out that that, that team 
that year. Billy Ray Smith used to joke. He said, if we get in the Super Bowl, we're going to win because the other team's going to be laughing so hard. Uh, we just we weren't very good, but we just found a way to win virtually every game after the Kansas City debacle. So the season, the Super Bowl, the title is on the toe of a rookie kicker. <laughs> what can you tell us about Jim O'Brien? Well, he had this long stringy hair, and we thought he was a hippie, and we we, we fully intended to shave his head after that game uh, and teach him a little lesson about uh, humility and being. Um, you know, he was a rookie, so rookies got pushed around in those days in the NFL. Anyhow, Jim took it very well. Jim had played really well for us all year. He won a game for us early in the year out in uh, San Diego, a real tough, hard-fought game in the heat. But he had said to Ernie Acorsi the day before the game, I sure hope they don't need me tomorrow. And Ernie said, what do you mean? He said, I can't kick off this stuff. We had not played on artificial turf. Well, we didn't know know he had said that until after the game. Uh, We didn't have the heart after he won the game for us to to, uh, cut his hair off. But um, we we, um, certainly were indebted to him because he figured out a way to kick off that stuff. He kicked it beautifully. The ball was perfectly kicked. Coach, I want to ask you about Vince Lombardi. I'd be remiss not hearing you talk about him. We had Jerry Kramer on recently, and he gave stories about Vince Lombardi. You're one of those few people who got to play for the most legendary coach maybe in any sport. What was was Vince Lombardi like? He was indescribable. Um, A walking force field, and I did not respond well to him. Um, I did not appreciate him putting me on the expansion list. I, I blamed him. Uh, couldn't possibly have been the fact that I wasn't a very good player, which I was not. Uh, he did it for the right reasons. And, and uh, so I said some things publicly about him that I shouldn't have said. And when he was on his deathbed, I, uh, a teammate, Bob Long, compelled me to go with him and apologize, which I did. And Coach Lombardi proved what a great man he was by forgiving me, extended his hand to me, even though he was on his deathbed and really changed my life because he lived out those priorities that he was so famous for, your religion, your family, and the Green Bay Packers. And I found out that all that was real. And I died at, at age 57 and way too young. And he really was a great man. I wish I had been a grown-up when I played for him. Wow. Was there one thing he taught you that you took to your coaching experiences? Oh, yeah. Um, fatigue makes cowards of us all. A great physical conditioning is an absolute necessity. That that never left me. And then the whole thing about wallowing in self-pity. I'd be sitting in a dark room as a head coach, getting ready to face a team, and we were full of injuries and downtrodden wherever I was coaching or playing. And I'd be wallowing in self-pity, sitting in the dark, and I could almost see those glasses of his glinting the way they did when he turned the film on saying, suck up your guts, get up off the ground, stop wallowing in self-pity, Curry, get to work. And by golly, I would do it every time. (laughs) Coach, I'm going to give you the final word. As you summarize the 1970 Colts, what do they stand for, and what's the legacy of that team in your eyes? The 1970 Colts stand for grit and togetherness and overcoming the odds. While we were not the most talented physically, we were the most gifted when it came to loyalty, and that's the only reason we won. Uh, I will never forget those guys. We'll always love each other and appreciate each other. We won the world championship only because we refused to let each other down, and that's just those are just the facts. You're the best. That was fantastic. Can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. That was great stuff. Really, you can't predict what someone's going to say, but you kind of gave us the goosebumps a couple times, so thank you. Well, thank you guys for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks, right. Coach. Have a good, have a good day. Thank good. you. You too. Bye-bye. You never know what you're going to get. You ask a quick question about Lombardi, and you get the goosebump answer. Right. Well, and it's always about Lombardi. I mean, I could hear people talk <laughs> that, that experienced Vince Lombardi talk about him all day long, couldn't you? Of course. A couple things we cannot let escape in talking about 1970. A record that lasted for 43 years. And I heard a direct story from Charlie Sanders of the Lions about this. The New Orleans-Detroit game. The Lions are winning 17-16, time's winding down. The Saints have the ball on their own 45-yard line. Mm-hmm. Gotta remember the goalposts are on oh, the yeah. goal line at this point. And they trot Tom Dempsey out there. Charlie Sanders told me, God rest his soul, 
When they saw the kicker came out, they said, what the hell is he doing out there? Couldn't believe they would even attempt it. But he hits the 63-yard field goal, and it's a record that wasn't broken. It was tied a few times, but it was not broken until 2013 by Matt Prater. 63 yards, a 43-year record. The other thing is this. Both Brad Schultz and Bill Curry downplayed Super Bowl V, saying it was a terrible game. I invite anybody to go to YouTube and watch the highlights. In fact, we'll put it on our Facebook page. Watch the highlights of Super Bowl V. They pounded the piss out of each other. <laughs> I mean, it may not have been the prettiest offensive game, but if you like defense, these guys hit so incredibly hard. The 70 Super Bowl was old-time football, Tom. It really was. A championship was earned there. All right, as we go, some vital reminders. I want you to like our Facebook page. You can get there immediately through our website, tb25.us. That's TB for Tom and Butch, 25 for Fox 25. Pretty simple there. And please spread the word. Tell people about the podcast and interact with us on our Facebook page with pictures and stories and ideas of stuff that you'd really like us to talk about. If you're listening through iTunes or Stitcher, very important, very helpful. Please give us a review. The more positive reviews, the better for everyone. We've got a lot of stories to share. A lot of people that we'd like to interview, so help us out along the way, and we will all have some fun. So, Butch, so what? My so what is Super Bowl V and Jim O'Brien with the kick. It was not in overtime like a lot of people think. I had that recollection that it was. There's never been a Super Bowl in overtime. But growing up as a Patriots fan, of course, the whole Boston sports scenes changed in 2002 when Adam Vinatieri kicked the ball to win a Super Bowl at the end. It was the most dramatic Super Bowl up to that point just for its ending. It kind of set the tone for competitive Super Bowls going forward beyond that. My so what is this? As much as 1970 set the standard of what we should expect going forward, it was a changing of the guard. The Colts got their redemption. They won a Super Bowl two years after losing so miserably to the Jets, but they were done. That was it after that. Didn't get back to the Super Bowl until Peyton Manning. Long time. Here comes the Dolphins. That incredible run under Don Shula begins in 1971, but first they run into a roadblock, a very determined and very angry Dallas Cowboys team that is loaded with Hall of Famers. Can't wait to talk about that next in our next episode. Until then, I'm Tom. I'm Butch. And that's TB25, a history of football. Thanks so much for listening.